0: With this job, it don't pay me much They give me just what they think I'm worried I'm gonna change my mind yeah. Hello, my name is Autumn Ghiat, and this is Working Girls History, a podcast of and for The Working Girl. All I keep is This week on Working Girls History, we're going to take a break from the conversation I had with Madison Cook Hines to talk about something maybe a little bit more fun than high-stakes scholarship applications. Every year, the Rhode Island Labor History Society awards leaders in the state for their commitment to organized labor and working people. On August 22nd, 2019, we decided to do something a little different. We decided to honor someone who might have been overlooked during their lifetime. That woman was Rhode Islander, labor leader, and pioneer, Elizabeth Nord. Elizabeth Nord, originally born in England in 1902, moved from Rhode Island when she was 10 years old. Her life in organizing began in 1917 when, after a long day of work at the Salembert and Clay Silk Mill, she walked over to the Pawtucket Central Falls YWCA to sign up for tennis lessons. She was 15 and had already been a full-time worker in the mills for a few years. This is how she found her local industrial club an organization within the YWCA for young working women like herself. She was like many women and girls at the time. At the start of the 20th century, Rhode Island had one of the highest concentrations of laboring women in the United States. By 1910, more than one in three women over the age of 13 worked for wages. A majority of these women worked in textiles, and like Elizabeth, Many had to leave school early and had little access to formal education. Elizabeth Nord got her education through the YWCA. There, she started to take on leadership roles, representing Pawtucket and even the whole state of Rhode Island at regional and national conferences, all in her teen years. As an active community leader and full-time worker, she also attended night school to finish the seventh and eighth grade and even took high school courses. In 1923, she matriculated into the Bryn Mawr Summer School for Women Workers in Industry. Her pursuits in education also took her to the Vineyard Shore School for Women Workers and as a tutor at the Barnard College Summer School. She was a full participant of the women's labor education movement in the 1920s. For Elizabeth, All this education wasn't about class mobility. It was about enlightenment and enrichment. She was proud of her and her family's work. She once said, I loved my weaving and knocking the old looms around. I never expected to leave it. In fact, one of her teachers at Bryn Mawr once remarked, you know, it takes just as long to be a weaver as it does to be a lawyer, and that's nine years. Elizabeth had been taught to weave by her mother, and she had in turn taught her brother to be a weaver. Of course, her younger brother would then be hired over her for the skilled positions at the mill. For Nord, those early years were about the dignity of labor, emphasizing working women's skills and fostering a sense of pride, solidarity, and internationalism among her friends and peers. It wasn't until 1928, when she was 26 years old, that she was able to join the union the United Textile Workers. One fateful and stormy Saturday, after getting off a midnight shift, she met a UTW organizer and leapt at the opportunity to join. The union was not very active in the late 1920s, and she recalled sometimes being the only person in the union hall on Broad Street at meeting times. The leadership was mostly male, white, and older, like most of the leadership of the AFL at the time and in some places today. Elizabeth drew attention as she began to rise in leadership positions and once received a friendly warning from a business manager. They'll knock the pins from under you. And though it was hard to predict the challenges that might face her as a rare female organizer, she later said, nobody's going to knock the pins out from under me. This bold determination took her all over the country as an organizer and got her through some of the nation's hardest labor struggles right here in Rhode Island. As strikes erupted all over the 1930s, Elizabeth would spend mo- Elizabeth would spend every moment she wasn't working going to other workers to bring them into the union. She volunteered this time because she knew the union didn't have the resources to pay her. Then, in 1934, she became a key organizer during one of the largest industrial actions in the history of American labor, one which affected the majority of Rhode Island textile workers. Over the previous decade, and with the Great Depression at its height, the New England textile industry had experienced steady economic decline. By late 1932, over one-third of textile workers had lost their jobs wages were cut, plants were closed, and by 1934 workers continued to see large-scale layoffs. This led to a rise in militancy in the mills. In 1934, the largest union in the industry was the United Textile Workers. Prior to that year, the UTW had never been able to claim more than a small percentage of workers in the industry. With this rapid increase in membership in 1933 and 1934, there was also a rising demand for collective action to ease the workers' burdens. In 1934, the UTW called for a strike in early September if workers' grievances were not met by mill owners nationwide. No concessions were made, and so on September 3rd of that year, a national strike began. During the 1934 strike, Elizabeth faced a dual conflict as a textile worker and as a leader within the YWCA, which was largely run by middle-class white women, many of whom were directly related to factory and mill owners. By mid-September 1934, about two-thirds of Rhode Island textile workers were not at work, Wives of some of the textile manufacturers were on the board of the YWCA and invited Elizabeth to speak to them about the strike. Nord's efforts to settle this dispute peacefully were unsuccessful. Early on, tensions between strikers and owners erupted into open conflict, centered in the Blackstone Valley village of Salesville in Winsocket, Rhode Island. On September 10th, the continued misuse of force by deputy sheriffs, closely allied with the owners of the huge sales textile complex, provoked a large-scale riot. The rioting, which began in the mill area known as the Social District on September 11th, soon spilled over into the city's business district. Looting, physical destruction of stores and other property, and eventual loss of lives endured. The rapidly escalating public tumult provoked Governor Theodore Green to mobilize the entire Rhode Island National Guard for riot duty and to urge Franklin Roosevelt on September 12th to intervene with federal troops. With both the president's cautious attention and Governor Green's intervention, the violence ended abruptly on September 13th. By the next day, a relative calm had been restored. On September 24th, after FDR had appointed a national fact-finding commission to recommend solutions on the textile workers' grievances, the UTW called off the strike in Rhode Island and throughout the nation. In Rhode Island and nationally, the workers' achievements from the strikes were minimal, but Noor's diplomatic efforts and ability to sit down with mill owners when few others could spoke to the power of her cross-class female reform. Throughout her grassroots organizing of female textile workers in the 1930s, when the union didn't have the money or people to support her efforts, she said, We had to do our own organizing. We had to do our own negotiating. We were the leaders. In 1931, Elizabeth was elected the first president of the Rhode Island Committee on the Women's Trade Union League. She served on the board of directors of the Rhode Island Consumer League starting in 1934. After 1934, she became a national organizer for the UTW. She was later elected the first female vice president of the UTW and was the only woman in the upper ranks of the union for a long time afterward. She spent the rest of her life as a labor advocate. She retired in 1976 after 60 years of work and died in Pawtucket 10 years later at the age of 84. The working people of Rhode Island owe her an enormous debt of gratitude. Her leadership and optimism in the face of prejudice opened the door for herself and many women in labor behind her. This is why I was so excited that the Rhode Island Labor History Society decided to honor her in 2019 as labor continues to strive for equality and diversity in the workplace and within our own ranks. Be sure to follow Working Girls History on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Like and subscribe to get all our episodes and tell your friends. Join us next time and be on the lookout for more Working Girls Wednesdays. In solidarity, honor. This episode of Working Girls History was recorded in Dublin, Ireland, in my bathroom. Enjoy!